This is the story of an incredibly brave, courageous, and kind person, Wes Plate. He enjoyed major success in the tech world, but finally had to face his personal demons, alcoholism, and depression. And he's a winner. He not only survived, he became an elite athlete and runs ultra-marathons such as the Moab 240 and the Cocodona 250. Wes is someone who's well-known in the tech world, but he hasn't shared the details of his personal story until recently. He remains a dear friend to us, and we are so proud of him. How did all this happen, and how did he win this difficult personal battle? For many years, he and his father developed translation products that made post-production easier for all of us. Their company, Automatic Duck, was a staple at all major tech industry events. And by 2013, Wes and his dad had gone to work with Adobe. Wes eventually moved to Apple as one of the key members of the Pro Apps team. But he recently left Apple to pursue new adventures. I talked with him about his tech career and his races. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. Wes, thank you so much for being here with me today. You have an incredible story to tell about your life and how you've overcome your own adversities and blossomed into this elite athlete. But the journey has been long and it hasn't been easy. And it occurred to me that during this time of COVID particularly, there are a lot of people who are struggling with depression and alcoholism and relationship problems. So I really appreciate you being willing to talk about your journey. Welcome. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I'm, I'm blessed that I've, I have a story to tell, I guess. <laughs> I never <laughs> expected that this is where I would be in life, having uh, become an athlete and sort of having endured this journey. But um having gone through all I've gone through and sort of come out the other side to think a bit better, I'm happy to share my tale. And if I can help somebody else and encourage them, then it's all worth it. So I'm happy to be here. Where are you in the world today? Because I know you've been traveling a lot. And I do want to tell everybody, you just ran the Coconino 250. So keep that in mind when you're listening to everything we're going to be talking about. So where are you physically today? I'm in, the, I'm in a town called Everett, Washington, which is just north of Seattle. Uh, this is where I live. Uh, I kind of grew up in the Pacific Northwest and uh, I moved to the Bay Area for a couple of years, but I moved back here uh, about a year and a half ago. And so, um, yeah, b- back in the Seattle area with all the good and bad weather that that entails. And yeah, kind of getting back into life after having spent about two weeks in Arizona for this big race. Yeah. Yeah, it went all through Arizona, didn't it? Where did where did you start and where did you end up? Yeah, so the Cocodona 250 started just a little bit north of Phoenix in a place called Black Canyon City uh, in the Sonoran Desert. And from there, we climbed up into an old mining town called Crown King, which uh, was really visually quite interesting to visit. And that was that first uh, major aid station was at mile 37. From there, we climbed over the Bradshaw Mountains and then descended into Prescott, Arizona. Um, That was about mile 80 in the course. Um, Then we went across uh, this large ranch and across a valley to eventually cross over what's called Mingus Mountain. And that brought us into an old mining town called Jerome. 
And then from Jerome, we crossed the uh, Verdi Valley into Sedona, which is one of the most visually stunning places I've ever been in my life. Um, and then from Sedona, we climbed up onto the Coconino Plateau, which is where Flagstaff is, um, and then ran about 50 miles on top of the plateau to finally reach Flagstaff. Uh, but before we hit the, the finish line, we had to go up and over Mount Eldon, which is a 2000 foot mountain right next to Flagstaff. So all, all told, the race was about 255 miles um, with approximately 40,000 feet of climbing. And uh, it was just, it was a tremendous adventure and a tremendous journey. And just even trying to talk about that, where we started and where we ended is just hard to wrap my mind around, even though I did it. <laughs> well, you can be awfully, awfully proud. Let's go back. I do want to talk in detail about the race, but let's go back to the beginnings of your tech career and working with your dad and all those transitions that happened over the years to finally take you to where you are now with Apple. Yeah, so I've had uh, an interesting career, I guess. Um, I've been lucky to have done some interesting things. I actually started out as a video editor. So back in the late 90s, I was editing TV commercials in the Seattle area. And I was editing on Avid Media Composer back then. And I was doing what we called offline editing back in the day where I was just making the editing decisions, but then sort of everything would get redone in a more expensive room a little bit later um, with higher quality uh, effects and those sorts of things. So my, my Avid wasn't capable of doing very good green screen or other sorts of effects. And I often needed to take my work into Adobe After Effects so that I could achieve a better green screen key or do some sort of a better effect work primarily so that I could get the advertising agency clients to buy off on what we were editing. So if they saw a rough green screen with sort of fringing around the outside, they might say, why does that green screen look so bad? And I would say, don't worry about it, we'll fix it later. But they couldn't see past it. So I would often take my Avid work into After Effects and then redo all my work in After Effects to make it look better so that the agency clients would buy off on my edit. And that was always very time consuming to rebuild that work. And so I had this idea that they could probably be better, that there could be a workflow that would improve that. Um, and my dad was a programmer. He had been working for Hewlett Packard for a very long time. And so I uh, approached him with an idea. I said, I think if we could make a plugin for Adobe After Effects, we could make it read that edit information from Avid and sort of build the bridge that would make my life and a lot of other editors' lives easier trying to do this kind of work. So in uh, late 1999, we were working on it. Uh, we worked on it through 2000 a little bit. And then in early 2001, we started our company. Uh, and at NAB 2001, we had our first product, which was a translating tool to turn Avid timelines into After Effects timelines. And that was uh, that was kind of the whole idea we had, you know, just try to like make, make that workflow simpler. Um, but we kind of hit on something because at that, at that NAB, some people from Apple came and talked to us and said, hey, is there a way we could get Final Cut Pro to After Effects like you've done for Avid? And then once we started working on that, that opened up doors to go between Final Cut Pro and Avid. Uh, and by the mid-2000s, our company, Automatic Duck, had lots of translation tools that allowed people to get between almost any digital editing tool into another one. And uh, we had kind of become the Switzerland of the video industry, allowing people to work with these tools that natively didn't want to work with each other. Uh, so Automatic Duck became my full-time job and I stopped editing in uh, around 2004, 2005, something like that. 
Um, and also automatic duck became my dad's full-time job. when we started, he had been working at Hewlett Packard and our agile and technology, I think is where he was at by that point, he had been spun off. Uh, so he retired and became automatic duck full-time. And my dad and I just had this wonderful time of working together and, uh, it wasn't without stress, but it was, you know, certainly quite special for me to have the time to work with my dad. And we also grew a little bit. I think the company was eight people at its highest point. We had some other engineers and uh, people working with us to, to build the tools. Um, and then in 2011, we partnered with Adobe and Adobe actually licensed the technology we had created and built it into After Effects, as well as some of the technology went into Premiere Pro. And so my dad and I both went to work for Adobe for a couple of years. And I then, remember uh, that. Yeah. I and that was a lot that. of fun. I had been working with the people at Adobe since basically 2000. So I had known a lot of these people already. Um, and then to go work at that company and work with them was, was sort of special for me. I was really happy to be able to have that opportunity. Uh, and then in 2013, I think at the end of 2013, my employment there came to an end and my dad had already finished up his contract there. So he and I um, started to think about what else we could do together. We started looking at Final Cut Pro, which at that point had been out. Final Cut Pro 10 had been out for a few years and was starting to mature and get some of the professional features back that users had demanded. And so I started looking at Final Cut and I really enjoyed using it. Uh, and then we kind of saw that there was opportunities there. Like, well, could we make a Final Cut Pro 10 to After Effects converter like we had done before? We made that. Uh, there was a big need for motion and final cut pro better integration because in the olden days of final cut pro 7 and like motion 4 there was great round tripping with final cut and motion but that feature went away when final cut 10 came out uh, so we built a motion a final cut to motion translating tool to help make that integration better uh, and then I guess by 2016, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm looking for a different adventure. Uh, and I learned about an opportunity at Apple on the product design team. There was an opening there. And uh, so I applied for that job and went through the interview process. And by the end of 2016, I was uh, employed by Apple. And so I joined the product design team, working on pro apps, working primarily on Final Cut Pro. Um, and then I left Apple. And so now I'm back on my own and um excited to see what's going to happen next oh this is amazing this is a whole new phase in your life yeah oh my goodness well i remember those days very well you were a huge part of our tech community do you know i still have a blue auto duck bottle opener on my keychain that's wonderful <laughs> i still have it uh for those of you listening in um there were these little key it fit on your keychain it was a little bottle opener that we all had and they were made by wes and his dad we used to get them when we went to nab and it was sort of a way of us connecting with you mentally and emotionally when we weren't together because those were and still are hopefully will be again very important days for us when we would would be able to gather from all around the world and spend time together and talk about what we were doing and show each other what we were doing. But for you and a lot of people, there was a downside to that because that meant a lot of parties and gatherings. And and tell me what started to happen for you in those days. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I used to love going. I still love going to NAB. Going to NAB and all these other trade shows is an opportunity to connect with people, see friends in person. 
And I, I also secretly loved going to those things back in my younger days because it was also an opportunity for me to stay up late and drink like crazy and and really just uh, sort of throw care to the wind. Uh, so, yeah, I had actually my flirtation with alcohol started when I was 15 years old. Uh, and, uh, I actually have this memory of the first time I ever got drunk when I was 15, the very first thing I did is I went and ran down the street and my friends said, Hey, Wes, what are you doing? And, and I just said, Hey, I just wanted to see if I could still run. So it's funny to me how I've now become a runner again. And all, and not, even when I was 15 experiencing my first, uh, drunken episode, I was, I was wondering if I could run during all that, but I, uh, at 15, I started drinking and in college, uh, it became just more of a part of my life, especially once I turned 21 and I had the ability to buy my own alcohol, uh, my drinking just grew in intensity and in volume at the same time, my health started to wane a bit as I got heavier with all the, the calories I was taking in. Uh, I was exercising a lot less and just becoming a bit unhealthy. Um, as I got into adulthood, I was, you know, my dad and I started this company, but even before that, when I was editing, you know, a big part of, of working with agency clients is going out to dinner after work or going out and there's always alcohol involved. And, uh, some of the people I worked with drank quite heavily. And so I joined them in that. So it got sort of more intense as the stress of automatic duck you know, was causing me and, you know, my dad and I, our relationship was stressful. Uh, I would drink in order to sort of put those stressful thoughts behind me. Uh, I was stressed at home. And so I was drinking to avoid the stress at home. And of course, it wasn't really avoiding because I feel like the drinking that I was doing was just making everything worse. It would make me even more angry about various life stresses that I had which would then cause me to drink more. And it was a, a bad cycle. Uh, and it was something that people I don't think saw. I know I've talked to a lot of mm -hmm. folks who learned that when they learned that I had eventually developed an alcohol problem, they were kind of surprised by it. I think because when I would go to Las Vegas and go to all these parties, I mean, I was kind of a fun drunk there and I seemed to have things under control. I was certainly highly functioning in my day-to-day -day life, uh, but at home and in my you know, in the dark recesses of my mind and what was happening in my heart, I was in a lot of pain and I was really unhappy. Uh, and the and drinking, I thought was a way to avoid it, but it really was just creating a, its own set of problems. Uh, by, I guess, the mid 2000s or a little bit shortly after that, around 2006, 2007, in that time frame, the drinking was becoming more of a sort of a problem that was impacting my life and impacting my family. My wife was concerned about what was happening with me. Uh, my dad was starting to notice that there was more alcohol. We would have company parties at Christmas time, for example, and I would just, I would just drink to incredible excess uh, and had some embarrassing times throwing up in the bathroom at some fancy restaurant and dad coming to find out what was going on with me. And I was um, not heading in the right direction. And I know that in that time, I was aware that there was a problem. I had sometimes tried to stop drinking. I tried to get healthy. I would try to go for a run, uh, but I was so I was heavy enough. That it was difficult for me to put any sort of physical activity into action because I would I would get discouraged immediately by just how difficult it was for me to move. Uh, and then my ability to stop drinking on my own, I didn't have that capability. I would try to 
slow down or try to stop it. It would eventually, but pretty quickly I would fail. Um, and so in at Christmas, 2007, we had, a, uh, just, that was when I basically hit the bottom of, of my trajectory and hit the rock bottom. When at some, at some point during Christmas day in the evening, I was, I don't remember any of this, but I was, uh, really drunk, really angry. I was out in the back porch shouting at the barbecue. Somehow I had gone into the kitchen and destroyed the, the refrigerator. I don't know what I did to break the refrigerator, but I learned the later the next day that I had somehow broke it. Um, so my wife was very concerned about me that night and actually had my dad come and get me. And so what I remember is waking up at my dad's house, sort of with a vague knowledge that something had gone really badly the night before. Um, also uh -huh. knowing that I had been completely drunk to the point where I don't remember any of it. And you woke up feeling really sick too, right? I mean, yeah, I did. And also just sort of, sick in my spirit too i was right. embarrassed uh, i knew that the problems that i had been sort of avoiding and failing to address were really coming to a head so yeah. i i kind of knew at that point i had to get help uh and so i think even before we ended up having a family meeting later that morning kind of an, an intervention of sorts to really draw my attention to the pain i was causing people and the and the problems i was causing for myself um uh, but even before we had that meeting, I could see that I needed to get help. Uh, and I actually called the local hospital here in Seattle that I knew was very successful in uh, helping people treat alcohol addiction and made an appointment for me to go in the next day. And so on December 27th, 2007, I checked into a hospital here in Seattle called Schick Shadel Hospital. Um, and they uh, offer a 10 day uh, treatment inpatient that's really super intense, um, but is medical and has a high success rate. And um, yeah, I went into the hospital and I over that there were some some point, I think maybe starting the 28th or 29th of December, my 10 days started. And then I was there through New Year's and and graduated out of that short in early 2008. I had a couple of follow up weekends that were like space three months apart or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But it was a, a program that worked very, very well for me. And uh, I'm happy to say that 13 years later, I've still never had a drink of alcohol, um, have no desire to, honestly, it's something that doesn't even cross my mind. And uh, it allowed me to start a new life that was much healthier and also prevented, provided opportunities for me that I don't think I would have ever had if I had still been in that cycle. You know, I'm sure there are people listening who would like some help who are, were you also depressed? Would you say that alcoholism also comes along with or creates depression as well? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I was so unhappy. Oh, I'm sorry, but I'm proud of you. So what happens in those 10, it seems like years of alcoholism and also being depressed and then you go in and 10 days later you come out and for 13 years you haven't had a drink. What happens? How is that what they call aversion therapy? What is it? It is. It's aversion therapy. And to describe it is, is terrible. It's, it's awful, actually. Uh, I mean, it works. But uh, I remember learning when I was when I was inpatient at Shikshadal that their particular brand of therapy is quite controversial in the recovery community. Uh, because it's, it's almost inhumane in some ways, what we did, 
Yeah, of course, this is 13 years ago, and I can't say what it's, if it's any different now. I'm assuming that there may be some of the, the tent poles are still similar, but it's essentially a version therapy where we were uh, forced, not forced, but you know, we we're, we're willing participants in this activity, but we drank uh, to excess under medical supervision, also with some in, injections of medicine that would make us feel even worse, and um, that uh basically the idea was to make our brains associate alcohol with this very terrible feeling of vomiting um feeling really super sick and that was paired with a a day of really intense therapy which also was under sort of a medical um umbrella where we actually didn't remember the therapy session but the the drugs that they gave us at the beginning of that allowed the, the therapist sort of a, a pathway into our subconscious where they could really talk to us and, and get clean answers from us about where we were at or what we were thinking. And so the, the therapy was essentially a, um, an alternation of one day of this, of really getting very sick with the aversion therapy. And then the following day, a very pleasant feeling of having this great therapy session that you don't really remember it, but you, what you remember is this amazing feeling of, of positivity afterwards. Um, and then the next day back to the aversion therapy, all the while, of course, there are classes and there's a lot of learning and one-on-one -on -one counseling. So it's not just the getting sick and vomiting, um, but there's a lot of other stuff wrapped around it. But I think it's what that the hospital has learned or, you know, when they developed the system many years ago was that between the aversion therapy and the, the follow-up counseling uh, it kind of paired together to eventually turn off a switch in the brain of the addict so that they no longer had the craving. And that was something that I had to, I remember experiencing it. I don't remember which day, but maybe around day five or six during the program, um, I just suddenly felt a different in my brain. Like I don't want alcohol anymore. And uh, I could feel just a real difference in my mind. Uh, and I actually can remember when I left the hospital, I drove home. At, you know, after I was dis, uh, um, after I was, what's the word? Discharged. Discharged. Thank you. I knew it was, knew it was a dis word. When I was discharged, I drove home. And prior to me having gone into the hospital, I was engaging in lots of dangerous behavior, including, I'm ashamed to say, I drank and drove quite a lot. So I used to sometimes stop at gas stations and go inside and get some beer to, to drink wherever I was going. And I stopped at a gas station on the way home, walked in and bought myself a bottle of water to drink on the drive home. And uh, as I left and drove away from the gas station, it occurred to me that I had walked in, bought something and walked out without even crossing my mind that I was going to buy beer. Like in the past, I would have I would have been thinking about buying beer. And if I didn't buy beer, it would have been like a real conscious effort to not do it. And on this particular day, I walked in and bought some water and walked out and it had never crossed my mind. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's, this is real concrete evidence of how much of a change that I've made in the last couple of weeks. And, and that, you know, lack of craving has just persisted ever since. Uh, you know, I did aftercare. Um, I, I did mention there was a couple of follow-up weekends that I had to go in. Uh, but then there was also each week I would go to the hospital and sort of join a, a sort of a group session to talk about how things are going. And I kept going to that for a couple of years because I felt like it was really valuable for me to share with the patients who were in the hospital that my success was working for me. Um, 
And during this whole time also, I had kept a blog. So when I was at the hospital early on, I started writing a diary for myself because I knew that by day 10, I would have completely forgotten day one. So I started a diary, which was I kept in a blog format because it was easy for me to log in and, and write these entries. And then after a few days, I thought my dad might be interested in reading about my experiences. So I gave him a login so he could read the blog. And then by the time I had left the hospital, I realized that there was just such good information and such um, positive impact that it was having on me that I wanted the world to know about it. So I opened up that blog to be public. And so uh, Wes at Schick dot blogspot.com is still there actually i'm i'm overdue to write a update about how things are going now uh, but that was a great way for me to document the experience of going through the hospital um, and what the treatment was like for me as well as when i got done just a way for me to document how life was different as a non-drinker and uh yeah like i said it continues to this day and i'm so grateful that i had the opportunity so that's wes at schick s-c-h-i-c-k dot blogspot dot com what was the one moment that you can remember when you might have said i can't do this anymore i'm out of here did you did you ever get to that point what was your bottom during therapy um, I don't really remember necessarily any bo uh, bottom in there. I mean, I remember learning a lot about myself and learning a lot about the, the ways that alcohol affects our bodies. And there was a lot of learning that was going on back then. Uh, but I really needed my addiction to be turned off. I needed my body to stop craving and wanting to have alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the, the system that they have at Shikshado was really you very uh successful for me and important for me to turn off that switch so uh, i didn't have to worry about coming out and sort of you know the, sometimes people talk about white knuckling it they're like so anxious to try to stay sober and all they can do is just like hope that they can be strong enough to avoid temptation and because of the the, the treatment that i received at shikshadal hospital i didn't feel like that was something i'd had to stress about because i simply didn't want to have alcohol anymore and and so for me not drinking was as easy as just not picking up a drink and since i didn't want to pick up the drink it was easy for me to avoid that so i you know, i still needed to sort of like keep my mouth busy you know oftentimes we're, we get so used to drinking something so it's drinking is just an activity so you know i drank a ton of water as soon as i left the hospital because I, need, I needed to sort of keep that that action busy of, of putting something in to drink um, but also I was so accustomed to taking in all these calories and taking in all this sugar too. So I had a real sugar craving when I left the hospital because I suddenly wasn't having all, all of that intake of the alcohol becoming sugar in my system. So I can actually remember drinking a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream every single night. Um, but yet I was still losing weight because the overall caloric intake that I wow. was doing was so much lower than I had back in my drinking days. Uh, and then eventually I got the, my ice cream cravings under control and put that into its own set of moderation. But, um, you know, you kind of have to control one thing at a time, but yeah, it worked out the whole system of that particular therapy worked out really well for me. Did you meet people that you think you've helped along the way? Have, what has the reaction been to like your blog or to the group sessions? Cause you're a leader, Wes, you're really intelligent. And the reason I'm asking some of these questions is you are brave you're very courageous 
And there are some people listening who are going, I, I don't think I'm strong enough. I don't think I have the strength to do this. What would you tell them? Or can you give us some examples of people that you might have met who wanted advice from you and came out the other end? Well, I, I am happy to say that I have been able to help people through the blog. I know that there's a lot of comments that I've received on blog entries over the years of people who told me that they were reading my blog because they needed help. And so they were looking for answers. Some people told me that they were actually going to go to the Shikshadal Hospital. And so they were reading my blog to learn about the experience that they were about to have. And so it was really encouraging for them to read about my experience. Um, so yeah, I have received comments from people who have told me straight out that my experience has been very motivating for them. Um, and it's, uh, boy, it's such an honor for me to be able to have that because, um, I mean, if, I guess I've always been the kind of person who wanted to share my experiences with other people, whether it be, you know, learning about something while I'm editing or learning some technology. Uh, these days now with me running, like whatever I learn, I want to share with other people. And so it's, I guess in the same way, I had some specific and interesting learning regarding alcohol treatment that I was able to share with people. Uh, it wasn't easy for me to share, I think at first, because I think I had to swallow my pride and admit that, you know, I'm, I, have a, I had a problem and I needed to sort of uh, be humble to the world and be like, I'm an addict. But by able to share my experience, especially, I mean, I'm so blessed that it's worked out well for me, uh, that I think that my experience can be encouraging to other people. And if there is somebody who thinks that they can't do it, um, you know, I, all I can say is that it worked for me. And uh, I am, uh, I think I'm learning that I'm a strong person. I don't know that I've always known that. <laughs> You're a strong person, Wes. You're a very strong person. Yeah, you let this demon, you push this, I'm calling it a demon. It's a terrible addiction. I have relatives and friends that have been through it. It's terrible. And they are actually sugar addicts when they come out. So talk to us for a minute about how you got your weight under control because you had gained a lot of weight. And then all of a sudden we see you and, wow, you've lost. How much weight did you lose? Do you know? Well, I lost a total of 70 pounds from my heaviest until, um, well, until just about now, maybe, maybe now I'm down a few more pounds, but, uh, I was at about 240, a little over 240 pounds at my heaviest when I checked into the hospital. Um, uh, and then fairly quickly within, I think the summer of 2008, I had dropped 40 pounds. So I was down to 200 pounds fairly fast. And I really didn't have to do anything special for that to happen. It was just mostly um, by reducing my intake of calories, primarily by eliminating alcohol, my body just started to shed weight because I, I had packed on so much because I was I was in I was just taking in so many calories. So mm -hmm. by reducing the amount of calories, I was able to increase my physical output a little bit, but that wasn't much of a, a weight loss generator for me. It was mostly just the reduction in intake. Um, and then a few years later, I lost a few more pounds. So I, in 2011 ish, um, I was losing, I was able to lose more weight. Uh, so I was down that lost me 30 more pounds. And so by the beginning of 2012, 
I was 70 pounds lighter than when I was at my heaviest. And that was essentially when a friend of mine introduced me to um, his Garmin watch and and uh, how he connected it to the internet to share his runs. And that was sort of like this sparkly technology thing that really got me into running. But uh, 2012 was then sort of when I started on this new adventure of becoming an athlete, which I think I would never have expected where that was going to end up. That's pretty awesome. I want to ask you one question before we get on to all the running, and that is you had really stressed the relationships with your family and with your parents, particularly with your dad. What did your dad say when you came out of the hospital and you told him that you had conquered this? What was his reaction? Well, my dad was really proud of me for having gone um, to get treatment and get help. Um, I suspect he was probably a little, little nervous that I was that this is all going to work. Um, I think I was a little bit worried that I would disappoint him if it through any failure. Um, but you know, the fa my family has has been extremely supportive. You know, during that whole time, um, my wife at the time was excited for me to stop drinking. My daughter at the time was five years old. And um, so she was excited to, to see the changes in me because even before I went to the hospital, I had a conversation with her. And even though she was small, she knew that when when I drank, I became a different person. And so she was excited to see what what changes were going to come. And so there were there were changes that everyone was really supportive of me. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the family dynamic for me was important because I. I really needed their love and support because I was feeling pretty bad about everything. I mean, even after coming out of the hospital, I still felt like I had really betrayed my family and, and sort of made a bunch of bad decisions that hurt people. And so their forgiveness and willingness to support me as I, you know, was becoming a non-user, um, that was certainly very important. This is wonderful for other people to hear. I think they need the support. When you're going through something like this, it's not easy. You need the support of your friends and family, but at some point it needs to be turned over to the professionals. So I think what you did is amazing. But I am picturing that Garmin watch. And how how did you get started? Okay, you 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 had your problems. You went to the hospital. You spent many years recovering. It's been 13 years now. How did you get started with the running? Well, I had run in high school. Uh, I wasn't a very necessarily a good runner in high school. I had run track and I was a halfway good sprinter. I had run cross country in the fall to keep my fitness up, but I was a terrible cross country runner. Uh, but I, I enjoyed my running stuff back in when I was in high school and in college, I ran a little bit, but like I think I mentioned earlier, I ran less and less in college as I got un and more and more unhealthy. So uh, by 2012, my running days were kind of far behind me and I had some fond memories of them, but they they kind of felt impossible to get back. Uh, but I, like I mentioned, my friend Michael had in early 2012 showed me this Garmin watch he had and he told me mm -hmm. how he would upload his workout to this website called Strava. And Strava, I sometimes think about as like Facebook for athletes. It's a way that you can see what people are running or cycling or there's various activities people do. Uh, and they show up in your feed and then you can give them a thumbs up or write comments. And so I, I, I just, I've always been a technology guy. And in fact, I've always been a watch guy. I remember as a kid, I used to 
get calculator watches and radio watches and any kind of cool technology in a watch i was i was into it and so when my friend michael showed me his garmin watch i just loved the idea that the watch would record the run you know and into uh, a recording that would like appear on a map so to me it was a neat way of sort of bridging uh an activity in the real world and then having it appear visually on the internet i just thought that that was an interesting thing and then the, the idea of sharing with other people and inspiring each other and encouraging each other also was right up my alley. I've been sort of involved in various users groups and internet communities long before Facebook and other social media. So it was all perfectly matched for me. So I got myself a watch uh, and started running. Mm -hmm. in, in the early days, it was, it was very light and infrequent that I was running. I couldn't run very far and it, and my mom had taught me a technique of basically running from one telephone pole to the next telephone pole and then walking to the next telephone pole and just alternating this run walk based on the distance between telephone poles and i thought that was a great way of of sort of allowing my mind to approach the problem of going from zero fitness to to something um and so yeah occasionally i would run a, maybe maybe a mile or two um and then later after sometime I ran my first 5k, but I really didn't have much plan. I was just sort of running because it felt good to be active. Uh, the activity felt good. I was not doing it very often because I just didn't have um, much fitness. So I, I don't know, I was kind of taking it easy, I guess. But mm -hmm. over time, it got easier and easier. Um, and by, let's see, I started in 2012. And by 2014, I was running a bit more regularly. Um, I was running up to five miles and there was a day in, I think August or September of 2014, when I had set out to run five miles, but I had made a wrong turn along the way and I ended up running seven miles. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself. And my friend, Michelle commented to me that she said, if, if I could run seven miles, I could run a half marathon. And so she said, how about if you come run the Berkeley half marathon with me? Uh, later this year, that was 2014. So I believe that race might have been in November. But her invitation to to do that was kind of all I needed. I just needed someone to say, "Hey, come do come do something more challenging with me." And uh, so I trained for my first half marathon, uh, which I'm, I was a bit nervous to do. It seemed very daunting to me to do that long of a distance. And so uh, I ran it. And it was not a very successful race in terms of, you know, high quality running or uh, speed. But I, I think why wasn't it? Why are you saying it wasn't successful? You finished it. Well, I finished it, but I finished it under a great deal of pain. Uh, I was still I still had a lot to learn as, as far as like how to run something like a half marathon. So that morning of the race, I didn't eat breakfast. Um, there was, uh, options along the course to drink a Gatorade or something. And I, I, I think I may have skipped some of those opportunities. I basically showed up to this race without any fuel in my body. And so I, I went and ran, um, I think the first 11 miles were decent in this race, but basically I ran out of energy and at mile 11 ish, I hit what they call the wall. And I was just like, oh, my God, how am I going to finish the remaining two miles of this half marathon? And so I walked a lot. I was in a lot of pain. I was, I was discouraged. 
Um, but I was also feeling, you know, there's, there's a lot of energy in a race. So I didn't necessarily feel like I was going to quit. There was a lot of, of other people, you know, sort of motivating me forward, but it was difficult to do those last two miles. And so when I finished the race, I was elated. I actually, I was full of all kinds of emotions of having completed my first half marathon, even though it was difficult, I did finish it. But I, I, did, I realized kind of in retrospect, oh my gosh, I have a lot to learn. So I was telling people that later that afternoon, some of the other runners we were getting together and talking about how things had gone. I talked about how I didn't eat, didn't have breakfast. And they're all like, what are you talking about? You didn't have breakfast. So um, I learned that I had improvements to make. And so <laughs> I think it was maybe less than six months later uh, in the spring of 2015, that same friend, Michelle, and I ran a half marathon in Oakland, California. And that time I had breakfast beforehand. Um, I had learned about fueling a bit better. And so I completed that race much more comfortably and successfully. And so, yeah, I, I started to learn about, learn better how to approach that distance and how to do it without so much pain. <laughs> so how did you end up doing these uh, what class do we put these in? I'm not a runner. The 240 Moab, that was a bear. That was a real difficult one for you. I uh, And by the way, for those of you listening, there is a documentary that Wes put together on his YouTube channel. How do people find that? Because I think they would find it really interesting to watch the 240 Moab. The uh, My YouTube channel is, if you just search for Wes Plate on YouTube, my first and last name, you'll find my YouTube channel. The The actual address, I think, is youtube.com slash C slash W plate. But uh, if you just search for West plate on YouTube, you'll find my channel. Um, yeah. Basically, the, any, dis, any distance of a race that's greater than a marathon, and a marathon is 26.2 miles. So anything that's longer than that is, is technically referred to as an ultra marathon. Mm -hmm. uh, most runners start with their first ultra marathon at 50 kilometers. So that's 31 miles. And I actually, that's what I did. So after having run a couple half marathons in 2014 and 15, um, I actually ran a couple more half marathons later in 2015, but I, I basically jumped from that distance to 50 kilometers, which I ran my first ultra marathon in October of 2015. I think the way that that happened was I had gotten fit doing these half marathons, which encouraged me to join a local fitness group that I'd kind of been scared of joining before. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't want to go join this fitness group. I'm in terrible shape. <laughs> so after having got in shape, I joined this fitness group and, um, it was basically just a boot camp that I went to in like five o'clock in the morning, a few days a week. And other members of that boot camp included people who were runners who were running ultra marathons. So I met this guy, Tony, who had run a few hundred marathon races, a hundred mile races, as well as some other ultra marathons. Um, and through him, I met other guys like Kendall, who also had this amazing history of running hundred mile races. So by starting to hang out with these people who were accustomed to running ultra marathons, it started to feel kind of normalized to me that that distance wasn't crazy. And there were other things in life that had led me to be interested in the distance. I had uh, met a guy on an airplane who told me about a book called Born to Run, which is a fantastic book about running in Mexico and, and some of the tribes down there and how um, they're just amazing runners and they're accustomed to running you know, many, many miles between villages. Uh, also, I read and uh, heard radio stories about groups of people who used to hunt antelope by running after antelope. 
and a friend of mine had been uh, a part of a uh, the the planning committee for an ultra marathon race up in Canada, and I'd, I had helped them train, um, help design the T-shirts for that race. So I had kind of had some things going on around this time that all seemed to be leading me to learning more about and getting excited about ultra marathons. So um, yeah, so basically, I had the opportunity to sign up for my first ultra that I did in, in October of 2015. And what's funny was, you know, my first half marathon. I struggled with because I hadn't learned all the things I needed to learn. And I had a similar thing when it came to my first ultra marathon. So uh, 50K is 31 miles. And this particular race was, was, is what we call an out and back. So we ran out on this trail. There's an aid station at the end. And then we turned around and came back to the starting line. So you look at it on the map, it's just a single line that we went out and back on. And when I got to that halfway aid station at approximately mile 15 of the race, my legs were starting to cramp up and the volunteers at the aid station asked me, well, you know, what, am, how is my salt intake? What am I, how is that going? And I, I kind of was puzzled a little bit. Like, what do you mean? How is my salt intake? I had been drinking lots of water the whole first half of the race. Um, but what I had not been doing was I was not replacing the salts and other electrolytes that I was sweating out. So while I was drinking water, that wasn't enough. And so that led me to be in a state where my legs were cramping up. So uh, the volunteers at the aid station gave me a bunch of salt tablets, which I started eating. But one of the things I learned is when once you sort of get too far behind on your electrolytes, it's very difficult to catch up. So I was I basically spent the next 15 miles returning back to the starting line just with my legs in a nearly constant state of cramping. Um, so I was taking pill, these salt pills the whole time, trying to get a handle on things. And, and there would be moments of respite where the pain would subside, but then I would start to climb a hill. And as my muscles started to work again, I would get the cramps again. <laughs> and so, Ouch. uh, it was a painful second half of that race, but I just kept pushing. I can just remember telling myself, you know, just up, up the hill, up the hill, just keep going. Don't stop. Uh, and what i eventually finished and i kind of collapsed at the start at the finish line sat down i couldn't walk uh um, and uh but i also felt like i had really really achieved something i mean i felt elated when i finished my first half marathon but now i had finished my first ultra marathon and i just sort of felt like i had really done something worth mentioning i was really proud of myself i think i posted on facebook that day that, you know, I'm now an ultra marathon runner. I'm an ultra runner. <laughs> and just having that label, I felt you know, really proud about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I still had so much to learn. I still needed to learn about, I learned about fueling from, from halves, half marathons. Ultra marathons taught me that I need to learn about hydration and, and replacing the electrolytes. So uh, that sort of became the, my next thing was to get better and better at that 50 kilometer distance. And eventually things did get better. I stopped cramping in the middle of races and things got a bit easier. Um, but I think one of the things that I had read about and heard about was runners, especially hundred mile or longer distance runners talking about sort of uh, hitting the wall or going through what they call the pain cave, but then pushing through and coming out the other side and feeling different on the other side. I had, I felt like, runners were describing an awakening or some sort of aha moment that 
when they they pushed through that they just came out with some sort of epiphany or whatever and i i felt like that was the thing that i needed i was seeking that i was seeking some sort of push through and and hear angels singing on the other side uh and i wasn't getting that with the 50 kilometer distance and i then i did a 50 mile race in 2017 um and that was really quite challenging i mean the distance 50 miles versus 31 miles is is a significant increase in, in distance Huge. i finished that race and in that race i was exhausted at the end uh, but i still didn't feel the angel singing i didn't feel this epiphany um and then in 2018 uh, a couple of friends and i my friend tony who i met at that original boot camp he and my friend mike and i ran uh the mountain lakes 100 in oregon and it was mike's and my first 100 mile race so i was really excited because i was gonna run all through the day and then all through the night and then hopefully i'd come to the finish line a new man with with all this amazing spiritual knowledge that i had gained along the way and it was a difficult race i was really well prepared for it i had planned um, one of the things i like to do when i'm looking at a large race like this is just study the maps i uh i created animations in google earth of like <laughs> flying over the course so i could visualize what it was going to look like and uh i really was mentally prepared for it and i had physically trained quite well i think i had hired a coach that year or the year before somewhere in there i hired a coach so i had a coach who had been training me um and so I, I went into mountain lakes 100 feeling really quite good and thankfully i finished it strong as well i finished it in 23 hours and 22 minutes if i remember good. right and you can finish a 100 mile race in less than 24 hours that's sort of considered to be an accomplishment so my very first 100 i finished in less than 24 hours uh and i felt great when i finished uh but i didn't have this epiphany that the I was angels having. weren't singing yet <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy to have my family there. My daughter came to watch me finish. My parents were there. Uh, I had some friends from home also come and surprise me at the race. So I had a lot of support, which um, is always great to have in these sorts of events. Plus, I think that, you know, the family has fun with these things too. There's a lot of, a lot to be enjoyed, but I didn't get that thing I was looking for. And even, even still, I remember coming across the finish line after having the sunrise and a part of me was disappointed that the race was over now of course i should make make clear i was exhausted i could not have run much farther are you talking about the last one cocodina no i'm talking about this first mile race oh the, the first, first hundred first hundred i was exhausted of course kind of wished i could have kept going i i felt like one day of running in a weird way wasn't enough for me i kind of wish there had been more uh -huh. so i think that started getting me thinking about what was beyond 100 miles uh by that point i had heard about 200 mile races i was seeing uh on instagram and youtube some runners that i had learned to respect who were doing these distances and uh so after running my first hundred and not quite getting that experience that i thought of i thought okay well maybe i need to go farther so in january of 2019 i signed up for my first 200 mile race which was the moab 240 which was going to be which was held in october of 2019 and so that was that's the race that you mentioned i have a documentary on my youtube channel and and also of course 
one of the, the neat things that happened sort of along the way that even led to that documentary being made was, you know, I have this history of being a video editor and I love making videos. I, I always have. And so along the way, I thought, well, other people are making YouTube videos of races that they're running. Um, why am I not doing that? So at, Mo at the Mountain Lakes 100, my first 100, I actually made a video of that. I used my phone as the camera because I didn't have anything better. Um, and I also didn't, at the time, I didn't know if I was going to do anything after 100 miles. I, you know, that could have been the one and done long distance race I ever did. So I kind of made a documentary out of it for myself, primarily just to sort of document the event. But I really enjoyed sharing that with others. And of course, I got great feedback from people who saw that video. So over 2019, as I was doing other races, I started making videos of those races too. So I started carrying a GoPro with me. And every video I did, I tried to sort of increase the production value a little bit and, and make these videos a little bit better and better. And uh, that's been a lot of fun for me. That's probably one of my greatest joys is, I mean, I love the running, I love the planning, but then after all of it, I still get to relive it as I make a video about it. That's the best of both worlds. How did you manage the sound? Because your, your dialogue is really clear and GoPros have terrible sound. What were you using? For sound just luck to be honest because if if gopros have terrible sound then and you think it sounded good maybe it was something i did in the editing but it was i just uh it, especially in, in the moab video i just held the camera in my hand so if right. i was talking to the camera i was just holding it out in front of me but it was all mic'd directly from the gopro i didn't have anything wow. special. that's surprising because the sound of your voice is really good now the Moab, you had some problems. You had some physical problems that happened in Moab, right? More cramping and blisters, and talk about that and how you overcame that. What happened during Moab was uh, around mile 110. There was a fairly strong climb up to the, the mile 128 station, and uh, the particular climb around mile 110, I remember it as being extremely tough. It was really, really steep. And even though I had done all this preparation and planning for Moab, I had looked at the elevation profile, I looked at the map, I made animations, I had read race reports from previous years, I'd watched people's videos from previous years. Despite all that planning, for some reason, this climb at 110 completely surprised me. Um, and so I'm doing this climb, uh, being surprised by how painful it was and how difficult it was. And when I got to that mile 128 station, something had gone amiss in my in my right hamstring. So at the top of my top of my calf, bottom of my quad, somewhere behind the knee in the hamstring connections, uh, I it had become unhappy. I'd injured it during that 110 mile climb. And so uh, I woke up. I took took a nap at mile 120, uh, ate hit some food, and then when I left the aid station this particular flare up behind my knee at the bottom of my hamstring was was causing me to not be able to run so um uh th there was a mostly a downhill uh, section from that mile 128 station to the next aid station and my buddy tony was pacing me so i had run the first 120 miles of the race by myself but my friends mike and tony and todd had traveled to moab to be a part of the crew and do what we call pacing which is essentially run with a runner their job to sort of help keep us safe and keep us on on course um and so 
Tony is also a physical therapist, which is quite lucky for me. So as I'm kind of going down the course, I'm like, I'm like Tony, my leg hurts really bad. And talk about where it's hurting. And he's like, oh, it sounds like a hamstring issue. Uh, he's, he suggested I use my, my hiking poles, my trekking poles, uh, which I don't normally use on a downhill, but by using the poles in that section, it helped relieve some of the pressure. And uh, so essentially, I had injured my hamstring halfway through this 240-mile race. And I just kind of figured out a way to just power through, I guess. I, it didn't hurt to walk, but it did hurt to run. And so um, sometimes I would just run a little bit and deal with the pain. Sometimes I would you know, stop running and move into a walking pattern. But I was able to walk, or I think we as ultra runners don't like to say we walk. Instead, we like to say we power hike. So <laughs> I, um, I power hiked. And I was able to get a pace that was almost 15 minute miles. So a four mile per hour pace, which is a slow run, but a fairly fast walk. I was able to maintain that for most of the remainder of the race. And also we would stop at aid stations and Tony uh, would use his physical therapist knowledge to give me a good massage on the back of my leg. So I was kind of treating the, this injury and I'd stop at other aid stations and have medics work on it. Um, and essentially it was just something that i had to manage i the it did improve over time and i think by the fourth day of the race the it wasn't hurting as bad as it was in that um the morning of day three when that when it had really raised its head uh but that's kind of interesting thing about these really long distance races is that you can have an injury and almost recover from the injury during the race so i had a little bit of a recovery uh, and then by the end of the race, I was able to run a little bit, but still mostly power hiking. Um, but yeah, it was just something that I think I wasn't going to let that end my race. I wasn't going to drop out because I had had this injury. I was still able to move. Um, so I just, you know, put on my, my tenacious hat. And Unbelievable. You are amazing. So now you've just finished the 250, the Coconino 250. Cocodona. It's a made up yeah. word that is a combination of Coconino, which is the county where the race ends, and Sedona, which is obviously a popular area. So they made up this word called Cocodona. So you have the ability to tackle what I see as major life issues and challenges, whether it's mental, physical, this these races i've i've seen i watched the documentary of moab and i was worried that you might injure yourself worse by continuing but you're saying no you didn't and that was amazing to me that you just kept going that is a huge endeavor and there were moments there where i know you wanted to quit and so here we are on the cocodona and i cannot get over you got totally dehydrated at one point and were becoming nauseous so here, can you describe that again? Because that was a key moment where you forced yourself into trying to create a situation where you were handling it, getting over it, and then saying at one point, I am not going to quit, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Cocodona provided a number of challenges that uh, some of them were expected and others I learned about as they presented themselves. It was a very challenging race. And I think that I'd gone into it thinking, oh, well, it's just 10 miles farther than Moab 240. Mm -hmm. uh, so how hard, how hard can it be? Uh, but 
the this particular race was on a course that uh, was designed uh, in a way that was much more difficult than the Moab course. The initial first 34 miles of the course had about 10,000 feet of climbing, which is a lot of climbing for that distance. And some other runners were saying that they thought that that first 50 kilometers was more difficult than any 100 mile or 50 mile race that some of these elite runners had done. So we were immediately presented with an incredible challenge right out of the gate. Uh, and so one of the ways that the we were warned about it, I guess, was we were told that we needed to be able to carry a lot of water for this first section. Uh, we were told we well we were required to have the capacity to carry at least three liters of water out of the first aid station at mile eleven because the section from mile eleven to the second aid station at mile thirty four was this very difficult climbing section with a lot of exposure with very little shade. Um, and knowing that we were in the Sonoran Desert where the temperatures could easily get into the mid 90s. So we were warned a bit, but the reality of it was more difficult than any of us had expected. And while we were told to carry at least three liters of water, I was thinking that I was probably better off if I carried more uh, because not being from Arizona and I sweat a lot as it is, I figured I would be better off carrying more. So. I made a strategic decision to leave mile 11 carrying six liters of water, which was very challenging because it was very heavy. I left that uh, aid station with a pack that just felt like, like, oh, I'm carrying the world on my shoulders. It was so- Yeah, no kidding. What was in the pack besides, you had the water, you had your, what, tell me what was in the pack. Yeah, so I had all that six liters of water, but I also had uh, long, some long sleeve jackets, long sleeve pants, a long sleeve shirt. Uh, I had extra cal. I had calories and food to eat with me during that section, but I also had extra calories sort of to use as an emergency. I had some sort of first aid kit going on back there. Um, so there was a number of things I was carrying that we were required to carry just in case of emergency. And in addition to all that, I had this huge amount of water, which was very heavy. And you have to carry a flashlight too, or were you? Did you have a headlamp? I have a headlamp. I had a back during that section. I had a headlamp, which in case of emergency. But right. later in the race, I picked up even more illumination. That was, um, yeah. I had waist lamps. I had headlamps. I had all kinds of gear. And so leaving that aid station that was quite heavy, but it was it was it was vital for me to make it through that section because I I at one point stopped and ref, refilled my bottles with some of the extra water. The second time when I was gonna when I was getting um, down to my last two liters of water, I was refilling some bottles and I had stopped on the trail because a friend of mine had stopped. He, my, I, I was coming up this hill, got to the top, and uh, a runner, a friend of mine, was sitting in the shade uh, taking a break. And so I stopped to talk with him. And while I talked with him, I was refilling my bottles, and he shared with me how he was running out of water himself and he was struggling. He was having all these problems in the heat. And so um, I basically, I was, I was blessed to have enough water where I could fill my stuff, but then also give him a half a liter of water. So uh, he was grateful for that. And there was all kinds of runners sharing water with other runners because so many uh, other competitors were just struggling in this section. And it took out a lot of people. I think there were at least 20 runners who, when they got to that mile 34, eight station, they had to drop out of the race. They couldn't go on. But because of the amount of water I carried, I was able to get through that uh, mostly unscathed. I mean, it was difficult and I was struggling, but I got through it. Um, 
But later on in the race, there were lots of, there was still a lot more sun and uh, exposure. And there was a section where I think it was the section from mile one, mile 180 to mile 216, something like that, where they had not warned us to have, you know, like a specific uh, carrying capacity. So I didn't have, I didn't bring extra water. I had brought enough water for what I felt like would get me from the mile 188 station to the mile 195 eight station. So there was a 15 mile section. Okay, I, I that's doable. Uh, I had carried with me about four, no, I'm sorry, two liters of water. I Basically, I always had at least two liters with me and I figured two liters would be enough to get me those 15 miles, but it was barely enough. And I got to that next aid station and I was running out and other runners around me had already run out. So that was a bit of a struggle. And then the next segment from mile 195 to mile one uh, to 205, that was a 10 mile section. I had two liters for 10 miles, but that ended up not being enough because it was so hot that day. And so I ran out of water uh, at least a mile before I got to the mile 205 aid station. And I was feeling dehydrated. I was starting to feel nauseous. Mm. Um, I could just feel myself starting to feel unwell. So I was with a, a runner named David during that time. And I'm like, man, I'm not feeling well. And he said, well, why don't we just sit down for a minute and relax? So but I never would have thought to do that myself. So it's like a great idea. So we went and sat in the shade, probably just for five minutes, but just enough to sort of chill out for a minute. Um, and then I got to that next aid station. And one of the first things I did was just drink a whole bunch of water and Gatorade and Coca-Cola. Just I just needed to rehydrate. And then the next section to, uh, what was it, to 219, so there was 14 miles to that next aid station. I basically kind of had another similar problem where just I didn't have enough water for that section. So by the time we got to the next aid station, I was out again. I was feeling nauseous again. Um, and also by that point, so by 219, not only was I suffering nausea, but I was also suffering from blisters. So I had had a blister form underneath the forefoot of my right foot. Uh, I noticed it starting at about mile 195. Uh, so at that aid station, I had a medic take a look at it, tape it up. Um, and then I sort of just pressed through for the next 14 or so miles, just teaching that blister that it wasn't going to stop me. Like walking on it hurt, but running on it hurt a little bit less. So I learned that I could run and I learned that if I kind of just really beat the blister, that eventually the pain kind of went away, I guess. So, but after, after about 20 miles of that or 20 miles or so, that pain was starting to come back. So uh, the story there was that I was running with a guy named Carrie and he and I were both feeling kind of tired. It was about 10 PM by the time he rolled into the mile 219 aid station. I was feeling really sick and nauseous. My foot was really hurting from the blister underneath my forefoot. We were both exhausted. We were really, really tired. Uh, and so we had a decision to make. We have essentially at that point, we had 35 miles left to go in the race. And we wondered, should we push on through the night? Um, not knowing when we would finish, you know, not knowing what would happen in those intervening miles, or should we take a break at mile 219 and sleep and otherwise take care of our bodies? And we were starting to lean towards, let's stop and take a break. Um, but we also realized that his crew had a hotel in Flagstaff. And all of this mile 220 stuff is around 
is New York Flagstaff. So we were getting close to the finish. My crew also had a hotel in Flagstaff and the race rules permitted us to leave from an aid station to go off course if we wanted to stay at a hotel or, or do something like that. So we uh, made, made ourselves available to that possibility and um, we planned to leave. So I got off course. I stopped and first talked to the medics, showed them my feet. And they mm-hmm. sort of gave some advice to how to deal with it. So we went back to the hotel. Uh, I soaked in the hot in the tub for a while so I could get my feet soaked and uh, drank tons and tons of ice cold water. I was just so dehydrated by that point. Ate a quarter pounder with cheese and fries in the tub <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then lay down with my feet elevated. I stacked my feet up on top of three pillows and slept for three hours. Mm-hmm. And then at 2 a.m. my alarm went off. And uh, it was like time to get going. I felt amazing by that by that point. Even my blisters were looking better. So we got back to the aid station, checked in with the medical personnel who taped me up, and um, things were looking. They even agreed that things were looking better. And then had some more to eat at the aid station. And then my friend Carrie returned, and we were out the door by about two forty, I think. And uh, that allowed us to feel re- refreshed and recovered for that last 35 mile push. And uh, even my foot felt pretty good for, for the most part during all that. So yeah, took care of the blisters, powered through, took care of the nausea by rehydrating, uh, getting some good things to eat and getting some sleep, helped things reset. And yeah, it basically allowed us to have a really strong last day into the finish line. Were they covering your blisters with moleskin? What were they using? Uh, we were using, uh, I think the particular mm-hmm. brand of tape they were using is called Luco tape. And so there was, the, the Luco tape is similar, this particular Luco tape was similar to KT tape, oh. which is uh, kinest- kinesthesia tape. Anyway, there's... So it stretches a little bit, right? It does stretch a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so they they did a great job of taping up the blisters. And unfortunately, I, I, I'm i still kind of frustrated that I even had the blisters. In hindsight, looking back on what we were doing with my feet, I think we could have prevented the blisters if we had been paying attention to some sweat issues I was having. I think my feet were getting a little bit wet, but mm-hmm. I wasn't truly aware of it because I'm running in the desert. And you know, while I'm sweating, right. most of the sweat's evaporating, but some sweat right. was going into my feet and we just weren't paying attention. And we probably could have done something different with uh, foot powder or something to to help alleviate that. There's some really, really good wicking socks too that 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 help that. I know in ski patrol, we used to get blisters and we'd put moleskin around them to ease the pressure on the on the blisters. But that kinesiology tape is great stuff. There's there's one precaution that I learned, and you've also now learned. When you're getting dehydrated, you don't know. You don't. By the time, um, it's like working on Stargate. It was 120 degrees, and you had to keep hydrated and hydrated because we're, you know, walking around in that in that heat all day. If you're feeling nauseous, it's already almost too late. You have to be really careful with dehydration. I was a little worried about you when I saw that clip of you in the tub. <laughs> Poor Wes. But but here again, proud of you because you powered through it. You healed yourself and you and you finished. 
Unbelievable. Yeah, just a precaution for all of you who do work out in the heat or for long periods of time. Keep yourself hydrated even when you don't think you need to uh, because... You can't always wait to be thirsty because no. sometimes, sometimes by the time you're thirsty, it's you've already gone too far. And in some place like the, you know, when you're in a very dry place like Arizona, you're just not aware of how much water you're losing. Absolutely. You can't perceive some of the sweat. Uh, so yeah, I definitely needed to have had more water during all of that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, again, it's a learning experience. I think it's easy to make these mistakes, but you need to be paying attention so that you can then learn from them and then yeah. make adjustments. So I think that that next time I do this race, I'll have a better experience. I think. <laughs> so what actually did keep you going? What was going through your head? I mean, you had the physical hurdles, you had the mental hurdle. Um, what triggered that thought where you said in the tub i am not gonna quit um well i mean i don't want to ever have uh what we call a dnf if you don't finish a race you know what, what you're labeled as is a dnf did not finish and that's just something that i would like to avoid my first dnf for as long as possible uh, I, I enjoy these challenges. I enjoy pushing myself. I enjoy finishing and being able to say I successfully completed something that was difficult. Um, so I think for me, it's just, I, I, I want to impress myself. I want to impress others. I want to complete something that's very challenging. And so when, even when it's hard, I just, I just motivate myself by knowing that that what I'm doing is, is kind of above and beyond what most people are doing. And so I know that people are paying attention and people are watching. And that inspires me to keep going because I know that whatever I'm going through, whatever challenges I'm facing, the fact that I'm going to going to finish this thing is going to inspire somebody uh, and is going to, you know, impress them and hopefully maybe even get them out to move their bodies or do something. Uh, but it's, I think it's also just, I don't want, I just don't want to have that failure on my record. <laughs> so yeah, it's just, um, sometimes there are low points and there's high points. When I was running into Sedona at mile 150, I was on a complete high point. I was running. I was feeling like fantastic, like the best I've ever felt. And I couldn't believe how good I felt with that many miles. Uh, and then about 20 miles later, I was at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It was the middle of the night. My, the runner I was with, he and I were both feeling exhausted and depressed. And just, we had to just force our way across the desert through the dark, not knowing how far it was until we were going to get to the next aid station. It felt like forever. Um, and we, it was a real low moment where we just had to sort of dig deep uh, and pull into those reserves of energy or motivation um, because what are your choices at that point? Your choice is to, well, yeah, I guess I could quit the race, but if I'm in the middle of nowhere, I still have to get myself to the next aid station where I'm going to actually officially quit. And then someone's going to come get me. So if I'm going to get to the next aid station anyway, I may as well just power through. Um, and eventually sometimes all that's needed is just to take a break, maybe lay down, take a five minute nap, eat, get something to eat. We got to the, the aid station, I think it was a mile 175. That was right after this moment when Carrie and I were both having quite a mental low point. 
And we just sat down, we had something to eat. We talked to the volunteers. They were completely upbeat. They, they helped buoy our spirits. And uh, that then motivated us into the next 10 mile section where we had to get to the next aid station. And during that section, again, we had some lows where we were just powering through uh, fighting the, the sort of these demons of darkness and, and exhaustion. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that's one of the things about ultra running and, and us as ultra runners is we, we face these demons, we face the exhaustion, uh, we face this, we call it the pain cave or whatever, and we just power through. Uh, and I, and I think that I was looking for an epiphany in the past and I, and I don't know, I think I got it. I just didn't, it just didn't um, present itself in the way that I expected. I expected the angels to sing. I expected somehow to be like handed a golden tablet of knowledge, but it's more subtle than that. I think, I think what I've learned is that we as humans, we as people, human athletes, we are capable of incredible amounts. I am, I'm so impressed by what we can do when we set our minds to something. And when we, when we practice, when we work hard, when we, when we train towards something. So I think what I've come to learn, what, what I think maybe what is my epiphany is that we are actually capable of far more than we expect that I had expected to sort of find some wall, push through that wall. And that was going to be like, I pushed through a limit, but what I've learned is there actually is no limit that barring, you know, injury, as long as we're able to stay healthy and certainly with support from our family and friends, we are, we actually are, are capable of, of, of anything. And there are actually zero limits. So we could just, it just requires us to train, to have the right mental attitude, to be physically prepared for something. But I'm at the point now where uh, I'm excited by exploring how limitless we are. You know, Moab 240 showed me how I could get injured halfway through the race, but just continue on smartly uh, and still finish. Cocodona has taught me that even more difficult physical challenges are presented, yet if I'm smart with my water intake or if I do sense a niggle in the muscle, I can take care of it easily early on. Uh, my crew, Leah, had giving me a massage on the back of my knee at mile 112 when I was starting to feel something come up. And that took care of that issue for the rest of the race. I never had that again. And so I, I'm starting to feel like there's almost no limit. And in fact, when we were running down those final miles, the last mile of this 255 mile race into Flagstaff, my friend Carrie and I were feeling fantastic. We were almost sprinting with the, the, the quality of our bodies at, even at that point was such that we could have kept going. So, you know, I think that there's, there certainly is a point where we, we, it's, we attack a problem like a 5k or a half marathon or a marathon or an ultra marathon, because we know that's the distance we're going to run. Once we hit the, that finish line, we're exhausted and we're done because that's the expectations we've set for our bodies. But I think now I'm starting to realize that if whatever the expectation is, it could almost be infinite and just, by smart hydration, smart fueling, smart body care and all that. I don't know. There's just no, really is no limit. And that's exciting that, to know that any of us with that sort of proper training can achieve anything. And I think the race itself is a metaphor for life, isn't it? This applies to life in general. You are getting ready to start 
a new life. So you've got another life race to run. And uh, what's your next physical race going to be? Uh, well, yeah, so uh, I'm running a race in two weeks. So I've actually set up a summer with a bunch of running. Um, <laughs> each month I have an ultra marathon ahead wow. of me. So uh, as I'm recovering from Cocodona, I'm now starting to mentally prepare for a hundred mile race in Pocatello, Idaho called Scout Mountain Ultras. Uh, and this will be an interesting challenge for me because I have never run back to back such long races with such a short distance or time, short time distance in between. So this will be an interesting challenge for me. Um, and then I've got a 50 miler planned for July. I have a, a 50 kilometer race in August, another 100 miler in September, a 50K in October. And then lastly, in November, I have the last, my last planned for now race of the year, a 100 mile race down in California. Um, and then in between, uh, I'm going to be editing because I just, you know, I shot video during Cocodona and I, my plan is to make a video. So I'm editing that video right now. Uh, I'm sure that I'll make videos of other stuff throughout the summer. So it'll be a summer of, of race planning, race running, and then race video editing. And uh, it's it's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm really thrilled about this summer. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, I'm happy for you. So picture who was there when you came across that finish line at the end of the Cocodona, who was there and what would you like to say to them now? Oh, what a beautiful question. Um, you're gonna make me cry. So I had my family at the race with me. So my partner, Leah, my crew chief in racing and my crew chief in life, she was at the finish line waiting for me. My parents had also helped crew the race. And so they were there. Um, I had a friend, Joe, my friend, Joe and his wife, Jamie were at the finish line and Joe had was a racer, but he unfortunately got taken out by that initial first day climb and had the DNF at mile 34. Um, but he had stuck around in town so he could watch me finish. So I had this extra motivation to not only finish for myself, but finish for Joe because he was sticking around town. So Joe and Jamie were at the finish line. Uh, my friend Carrie, who I had spent basically three days running with, he and I had started running together as we approached Sedona and just enjoyed each other's company so much. We ran most of the race together. So he and he was he had gone across the finish line ahead of me as we had, we had kind of made a plan for how we were going to cross. And he was ahead of me. He was there. And then just all these other faces of previous of runners who had come across the finish line ahead of me. As I approached the finish line, I just saw their faces and they were all cheering and photographers were taking photos. And there was a film, film guy with his camera taking video and just so much cheering and excitement. Um, uh, you know, congratulating us on, on this achievement. So yeah, I, I came across the finish line and one of the cool things, well, at every race, there's usually a finisher award. Sometimes they're medals, uh, with hundred mile and greater distances. The, the tradition is to get a belt buckle and often it's the race director or some volunteer who's giving that out. But at Cocodona, they had this, they allowed crew to give the, the medal. So, Leah had the medal in her hands as I finished and um, gave her a hug and gave her a kiss. And that was really special to have her present the award to me. Um, and then it was just a bunch of hugs. I got, I got a tearful hug from my father. Um, and I just, I just want to tell them how thankful I am for their support because I'm, I feel like I'm a part of a team and we actually had, 
written on the back of our rate of our rental vehicles down in Arizona, Team West. Um, <laughs> and so I, I could probably do all this by myself. Uh, I'm going to be doing the 100 mile race next month completely by myself. But these Cocodona and Moab, having Leah there and having my parents there, being a part of my team, being a part of my crew, I feel like I am doing it with their support. Um, it's difficult to do this by myself. My job is to run. Their job is to help me get ready for the next run. At these aid stations, they help me recover and get prepared for the next segment. And so we're all in it together. We're a team. And so I'm so grateful to them for trusting me to be a part of my team, to believe in me that I can be the person who runs to that next aid station to meet them. And uh, it's it's made something possible that I would never have expected to become a part of my life, to be running crazy distances, inspiring people with my adventures. Uh, and so um, I'm just grateful to them to make it possible that I can I can be having this life now and make it possible for me to have this conversation with you. I mean, if none of this would have mm -hmm. happened, this wouldn't be happening. So I'm grateful to, to share it with you. Well, you've got me in tears. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my goodness. You know, all of this and everything you've gone through in your life is so important for other people to hear about because right now, the pandemic and people were starting to come out of it in our country, but in many countries, they're still isolated. I have a friend who has been uh, 430 days, hasn't left her apartment. Oh, wow. Uh, luckily, she's a really strong person. But what you're saying is I think we need two things. I think we need personal courage and perseverance and belief in ourselves to get us through the hard times. And I also think we need that network of people who we know love us and who are there for us. And you are a very lucky person because you have both. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy we're friends. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I do struggle with the personal part of the like the believing in myself that's something that i i struggle with to this day so uh i do feel like one of the things i got from cocodona was a bit of confidence uh going into it i probably thought i would have finished it but i feel so much more strong now but self-confidence is something that i struggle with constantly and i i don't have a very good um self-esteem or self-belief system so i I am grateful for those around me who believe in me when I don't believe in myself. Uh, and I and I think I do think that we all need to work harder at believing in ourselves. And I certainly take that on as something that I need to work on. Uh, but yeah, if we have people around us who can help support us, that is such that makes such a big difference. I really do believe that. I do too, and I urge everybody to go look for West Plate on YouTube, uh, the Strava site. Where are you, where do they go to find you on Strava? Because there's really good detail there as well. Yeah, you can follow me on Strava if you just search. There, there's an athlete search on Strava. If you mm -hmm. go there, um, I'll also point out if you go to WestPlate.com, I've kind of made that be a a portal to sort of all these things. So from westplate.com, you can easily find links to my videos. You can find links to me on Strava. Uh, also, my running Instagram is midpackelite. Uh, and so if you go to mid midpackelite on Instagram, uh, you'll find my running stuff there. Uh, and then of course, search for Westplate on Strava or on YouTube. Uh, but then also westplate.com is a place that will also help you get to all those locations. 
Well, Wes, this is awesome. I, <laughs> you have a lot of races coming up. I wish you all the best with that. And this is an exciting new chapter in your life. We, we're going to be following you. So hope to bring you back again, probably after the race in California in November. Maybe I could be part of the medical crew at one of the aid stations. That would be awesome. Yeah. Aren't you coming somewhere near San Diego? The San Diego race was canceled. So that's what, okay. uh, so I'm going to do be in Pocatello, Idaho instead. But the race in November okay. is uh, near Auburn. Uh, so if it's more Northern California. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, everybody listening, you know what I always tell you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. And even if it's in your own home, you'll find something wonderful to do. Think about Wes and all he's been through, and you can do it too. So we will see you the next time. This is Serena Catania. He's Wes Plate, and I am signing off. OWC Radio is sponsored by Otherworld Computing, delivering perfectly tailored workflow solutions for every tech user with trusted storage, connectivity, software, and expansion products, and 24-7 U.S.-based technical support. OWC believes in making a better world where technology inspires imagination and everything is possible. Find your solution at MaxSales.com.